Have you, you ever find yourself distracted from what you were called to do? What? Oh, great answer. Great. I'm, glad, I'm just glad I'm not the only one. So sometimes the distractions that come up in our lives uh, are actually good things, right? They're not necessarily evil, sinful things. Good things can get in the way of what we should be doing, and sometimes we have to say no to good stuff because we have a task to finish a job, um, a task to do to finish a job. Sometimes, though, our, the distractions that are in our lives are our own sinful, selfish desires. The pursuit of our self and the things that we want gets in the way of doing what is right. And then sometimes you're just trolling and trotting through life, doing what you know is right, and you get tripped up, you break your leg, and then you spend time learning how to navigate different routines and learning how to walk again. Our current series on Daniel 7 through 12 is entitled Beacons of Hope. As believers in Jesus, we are to help others see the hope that is within us. That is our business. That is our opportunity. That's what we do. But I know that I get distracted from doing that at times, and my guess is that you do as well. Our friend Daniel had plenty of opportunities to be distracted in life from doing what God called him to. Yet we regularly find when we study him that he stayed faithful even in difficult and confusing times. And today, in our study, we come to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 represents a major shift. You see this statement in your notes. Major shift. The language goes back to Hebrew, and the events described here forward are seen through a, specific, a specifically Israeli lens. And as a little reminder of the overview of our current series, let's look at Pastor Wayne's notes real briefly. Chapter Wayne, uh, chap, chapter Wayne. It's already nap time, apparently. Chapter 7 of Pastor Wayne's notes contain a summary of the times of the Gentiles, a dream vision in 553 B.C. Chapter 8 covers Persia, Greece, and the Antichrist in relation to Israel, vision in 551 B.C. Uh, note that he made Daniel 5 events occurred on October 12, 539 B.C. Chapter 9 predicts Jewish history from Ezra to the second advent of Jesus. Chapter 10 through 11 reveal Gentile oppression of Israel. And chapter 12 concerns the new Roman Empire and Israel's deliverance. So, open your Bible to, Jan to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. In verse 1 and 2, we read, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After the one that had appeared to me earlier, I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa, in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Uli Canal. This new vision given to Daniel was a couple of years after the first vision seen in chapter 7. And this, in this new vision appears a place that was little known at the time. See the map here, Susa was about 250 miles east of Babylon. We see Susa mentioned in both the story of Esther and Nehemiah. If you look at Esther 1-2, it says, In those days King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. Nehemiah 1.1 says the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakalai, during the month of Chislev in the 12th, 20th year when I was in the fortress city of Susa. And John Walver makes this observation about 
this place. As in a word, Daniel finds himself projected in vision to a town little known at the time and unsuspected for future grandeur, but yet destined to be the important capital of Persia, the home of Esther, and the city from which Nehemiah came to Jerusalem. Beginning in 1884, the site of ancient Susa, then a large mound, has been explored and has divulged many archaeological treasures. The Code of Hammurabi was found there in 1901. Over goes on, it says, The famous palace referred to by Daniel, Esther, and Nehemiah was begun by Darius I and enlarged by later kings. Remains of its magnificence can still be seen near the modern village of Shush. This unusual setting described in detail by Daniel in the opening verses of the 8th chapter now becomes the stage on which a great drama is portrayed and symbol describing the conquest of the second and third empires, end quote. So let's see what Daniel saw. Verse 3 of Daniel 8 says, I looked up and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, to the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. He did whatever he wanted and became great. Now, just for some reference, we'll look at a chart from Dr. Charles Dyer, he is currently a professor at Phoenix Seminary, used to be at DTS, and this is a chart that he prepared. Chapter 7, you see the bear, who had two sides, and one side was raised, with three ribs between them. In chapter 8, you now have a ram. The ram also has two, he has two horns. One of the horns is longer, higher, and then at the bottom of that chart, you see he pushed west, north, and south. That is similar to what the bear with three ribs between the teeth shows the countries conquered. There's some similarities in these beasts, chapter 7 and 8. Now beginning verse 5, Daniel says, As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Again, Dr. Dyer has a chart to help us compare what's happening here and in chapter 7. Chapter 7, we had the leopard. Both the leopard and the male goat had extensive conquests. Dominion was given to the leopard, and the male goat, says, was over the whole earth. The leopard beast in chapter 7 had four wings of a bird, allowing it to move swiftly. And the goat in chapter 8 did not touch the ground, which signifies how swiftly it moved across the earth. The four heads in chapter 7 and four horns in chapter 8 signify Alexander the Great's successors that we see in verse 8, which says this, verse 8, Daniel chapter 8, Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he came, became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. Dr. H.A. Ironside makes this comment, says, Alexander's day of power was a very brief one, his early death testifying to his inability to hold in check his appetites and passions, and thus the great horn was broken. 
None of his household succeeded Alexander, but upon his untimely decease, his dominions were divided among his four leading generals, namely Ptolemy, who was acknowledged as king of Egypt and the adjacent countries, Seleucus, who took Syria and Asia Minor, Lysimachus, who had the sovereignty of Thrace and the contiguous territory, and Cassander, Cassander, to whom fell Macedonia and all Greece. Thus was the empire divided, and there was never again a master hand commanding until Roman conquest in the last century before Christ. So, after seeing the four horns rise, Daniel sees the triumph of the little horn. The triumph of the little horn. Verse 9. It says, From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw the truth to the ground and was successful in what he did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and giving, the giving over the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. He said to me, speaking to Daniel, said, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. So, we talked about these other kingdoms and leaders. Who is the little horn? I was really hoping you would tell me. (laughs) Because I have been wrestling with this. And it's not that easy to figure out. There's this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who subdued Egypt and then Judea. He was a really, really evil man. Listen to Dr. M.R. Dehan on Antiochus. He says, now it is a historical fact that Antiochus Epiphanes came out of Syria, one of the four kingdoms into which Alexander's empire was divided. We know also that the first made many, many promises to the people in the land of Palestine, only to disregard them all. We know that in the height of his power, he went into Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, abused and killed the priest of the Lord Most High, went to the altar upon which only holy things and clean animals were to be sacrificed, and instead, as an insult to God, Jehovah Israel, and the temple of, and all that it's holy worship, he slaughtered a swine, a pig, and sacrificed it upon the altar, which was reserved only for the holy sacrifices of the Almighty. This dude was bad news. He did not care what the Lord commanded. And much of what he did in his life is depicted somewhat in this vision of the little horn. But it isn't quite that simple. Listen to John Walford again. He says this, he says, up to Daniel 8, 11, it is not difficult to find fulfillment of the vision and history of the Medo-Persians, Alexandrian, and post-Alexandrian periods. 
Beginning in verse 11, however, expositors have differed widely as to whether the main import of, this pa- of the passage refers to Antiochus Epiphanes with a complete fulfillment in his lifetime, or whether the passage either primarily or secondarily refers also to the end of the age, that is, the period of the great tribulation preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Walker goes on, he says, the divergence of interpretation is so wide as to be confusing to the student of Daniel. As Montgomery states, that's James A. Montgomery, verses 11 and 12 constitute the most difficult short passage of the book. Thank you, Wayne. difficult to interpret. Walver tries to break down the divergent views in three general classifications to help us in the study. So let's look at his three general classifications to see if it can help us out a little bit. First, the critical view that Daniel was a second century forgery written by a pseudo-Daniel regards this prophecy as simply history written after the fact and completely fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. Second, The view that this is genuine 6th century B.C. prophecy, but completely fulfilled historically in Antiochus Epiphanes. And the third general classification that Walver gives, he says the view that the prophecy is genuine prediction fulfilled historically in the 2nd century B.C., but typically an anticipatory of the final conflict between God and Gentile rulers at the time of the persecution of Israel prior to the second advent of Christ. Did that clear it up for you? No? Man, you guys are supposed to be helping me out. So we're gonna throw out the first one, and here's why. There's simply no reason to believe that Daniel wasn't Daniel writing this book. It doesn't make any sense that it was somebody else writing backwards to make it fit. It doesn't fit, so we're gonna throw that out and we're gonna hold on to the other two for a moment. When you look at a couple other things in this section, just to kind of try to understand what is being said here potentially. Daniel 8, verse 9 through 11. Uh, the beautiful land mentioned here seems to reference Palestine, perhaps even Jerusalem specifically. The stars are possibly referencing the Jews. We can't be for certain, but it does make some sense with how particularly Antiochus persecuted the Jews, so it makes some sense potentially that it was the Jews that are referenced as stars. There's also some debate regarding the 2300 evenings and mornings. Are the actual evenings and mornings as in days, or do they represent years? I've heard it both ways. I would say it simply seems best to take it as literal 2300 evenings and mornings. And I think Dr. Walvoord has a nice um, quick statement about this that seems to fit pretty well. Taking all the evidence into consideration, Walvoord says the best conclusion is that the 2300 days of Daniel are fulfilled in the period from 171 BC and culminate in the death of Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 BC. Those dates do add up, which is why it seems that it's best to take those as literal evenings and mornings. Now we find ourselves with Daniel being addressed by Gabriel to hear a little bit more of what the interpretation means. Let's get some help from Gabriel. 
Daniel 8.15 says this is why I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it. There stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Uli, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. He fainted. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, made me stand up, and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to the appointed time of the end. I'm going to take a quick moment to highlight a few pieces of background information on Gabriel. This is from Pastor Wayne's study notes. He states this, it's an important deal. He there is a huge difference between biblical prophecy and non-scriptural apocalyptic literature, meaning the Bible hardly ever names angels or demons. In fact, this is the first time in the Bible that an angel is named, and it only happens a few times. My side note to that is I recommend that you be very careful believing an angel with a name that sounds moronic. Number two, Gabriel is commanded by a human voice. Almost surely God the Father or the Son, the Ancient of Days or the Son of Man. Those have been terms throughout um, some of our last lessons in Daniel. And finally, about Gabriel, Gabriel lifts Daniel up. This is always the case with God's messengers informing God's people. They lift them up. Now let's take just a moment, too, to talk about this type of prophecy. This is a difficult passage to understand completely. We just read that Daniel himself was trying to understand it. So I took out the first three of, of the class, classifications of views that Walvoord used to generalize what's going on with who the little horn is. Let's look at this, the other two again. The view that this is genuine 6th century B.C. prophecy but completely fulfilled historically in Antiochus Epiphanes. Completely fulfilled in Antiochus. The other view is that the prophecy is genuine prediction fulfilled historically in the second century BC, but typically and, and anticipatory of the final conflict between God and Gentile rulers at the time of the persecution of Israel prior to the second advent of Christ. Again, that's from Dr. Walver. So, which one is it? I don't know. I don't know. It seems that both of these have merit. Both of these have merit. And there are much smarter people than I who stand on both decisions. So I will not die on a hill today on either one of these. But I will tell you where I lean. I lean towards the third. I have trouble with that, the second simply because of what Gabriel says and what we just read. The vision refers to the end of the time. And he says, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the appointed time of the end. So I lean towards the third option, that Antiochus did fulfill and meet some of those requirements, but even that's iffy because he didn't meet all of them necessarily, as you continue to read. 
So what many scholars say is that they see a double fulfillment, meaning that there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. One happened in the near, which would be Antiochus, and another would be afar, which would be the Antichrist. There are also questions about this. Is that hermeneutically possible? Can Scripture have two interpretations? I don't think so. Pastor Wayne summarizes uh, another view that holds to the third, to the third, but as a little different than double fulfillment. He says this says double reference or type is instead what is meant here. It refers to the historical kingdom of the little horn only as a reference. Antichrist is the ultimate fulfillment of the little horn. Antichrist is the ultimate fulfillment of the little horn. I do think this makes some sense. Particularly, if you remember last time when he was talking about the Antichrist, there have been many small Antichrists throughout history, correct? That foreshadow the coming one. This seems to make the most sense to me at the moment. Again, I'm not dying on the hill today. With that in mind, though, we're going to take the next section beginning in verse 20 where Daniel sees the end of history. Let's read. Says the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of per- Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Verse 23, near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. So Gabriel is trying to help Daniel understand the vision. And again, the first part is simple. We see the ram is explained. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Let's take a look at that chart from Dr. Dyer. Just to highlight again, the similarity between the bear and the ram representing Media Persia. Next, in this passage, we, the section we just read, the goat is illuminated. So the shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. As a reminder, this is Alexander the Great. Again, Dr. Dyer's chart is helpful. Again, to see how the chapter 7 and chapter 8 line up in the vision. Daniel eight twenty two. Gabriel says, the four horns that took place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Remember, these are Ptolemy, Seleucus, Asimachus, and Cassander. And then we have verses 23 through 26, which is the debated passage describing the evil of this one coming. And this is what J. Dwight Pentecost summarizes seeing this as the forthcoming Antichrist. He says, He will achieve great power by subduing others, Daniel 8, 24. 
He will rise to power by promising false security, verse 25. He will be intelligent and persuasive, verse 23. He will be controlled by another, verse 24, and that is Satan. He will be an adversary of Israel and subjugate Israel to his authority, verses 24 and 25. And he will rise up in opposition to the Prince of Princes, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 25 also. And his rule will be terminated by divine judgment, verse 25. Dr. Pentecost summarizes this, says, so it may be concluded that there is a dual reference in this striking prophecy. It reveals Israel's history under the Seleucids and particularly under Antiochus during the time of Greek domination. But it also looks forward to Israel's experience under Antichrist, whom Antiochus foreshadows, end quote. So then, the end of the chapter shows Daniel's response. What does he do with this vision? Verse 26 is the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. This is Gabriel speaking. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. Gabriel's commanding Daniel to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. And it says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. Here's a quick note on Pastor, from Pastor Wayne about the sealing up of the vision. He says, Gabriel's command to seal means to protect, not hide away. This information must be kept safe and available for those under the coming tribulation. So, Daniel has been given another difficult vision of the future, a disturbing vision of the future, and he is absolutely ill. He's sick from what he saw. You ever felt ill and disturbed from studying prophecy? Like maybe right now? I have. This week has been a mess. My stomach churning. I haven't slept very well. I've wrestled with this. Confusion, questions. Or what does this mean? Overwhelming moments as I sought to understand, but found out that there are just some things that I cannot know. And I don't like that. My flesh does not like that. I want to be in control. I want to know. I want to be God. But I'm not. And that makes me sick. That makes my flesh sick. You ever had those thoughts? Or maybe you're just sick because it's so disturbing to see the evil that is present in the world. That's what Daniel was seeing too. He was seeing the evil that was coming forth. Daniel, the prophet of God who has been used for decades to show off God's almighty power, he was sick from what he saw, the vision of the ram and the goat and the little horn. But did he wallow in that sickness? Did he stay paralyzed and in, in a disturbed state? No, he got up and went to work. He says, I got up and I went about the king's business. I got up and went about the king's business, even in his lack of understanding. Things he didn't understand yet, things he didn't know yet, things he saw that were evil that made him sick and disturbed. He got up and went about the king's business. 
This isn't under, uncharacteristic of him. Remember, Daniel is the same guy that was faithful to his dietary routines to honor the Lord when he was taken captive as a young man. He worked to do what the king asked him to do, both his almighty king and God and even his evil kings that he served under. You understand that his bosses were kind of worse than yours, really, most of yours. But he stayed faithful and he went about the king's business. So what's our response? What should we do when we are wrestling with the truths of the prophecies in Daniel? When we started this series, Pastor Wayne quoted Pastor Ryan Boys about why we should study prophetic apocalyptic passages. Let's read part of that again. Ryan Boy says, how can apocalyptic visions thousands of years old be relevant to people's ongoing existential crisis? By looking forward to God's judgment of the wicked and his ultimate resolution of the problem of evil, the vindication of believers and their faith in Jesus and the ultimate establishment of God's kingdom on earth, each of these themes will resonate in our culture for years to come. So, we study these passages to know the truth. We study to seek to know God, to know who He is, and to, to know what He desires, to know what He plans before us for the future so that we can live accordingly in light of His truth. And even if we don't understand all of the things that He tries to show us, even if we are like Daniel who gets sick from seeing a glimpse of the destruction that is to come, we must press on in what we do know. We must remember that God promised triumph for us who belong to him. Those who have trusted in Jesus as Savior, we know that we are more than conquerors. Daniel knew who his God was and he continued to do the king's business. In Romans, the Apostle Paul wrote to show the abounding grace and the mercy of God. He wanted to declare that to mankind the opportunity to be righteous through faith in Jesus. That the law cannot save, and because of the work of the Lord on the cross and in His resurrection, sinful people are able to call Almighty God, Abba. We are able to have a personal, close relationship with the Father because Jesus made the way to reconcile us before him. We know that truth. We know that for those who have been reconciled, we know that all things, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for, those, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I'm going to read the, the rest of this chapter, and I would like for you to read in response with me. You're going to take the underlying text. In verse 31, it says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? How? 
will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered and altogether No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We stand in the truth that we know. And we stand in that truth. It changes everything. In confidence, we sit and rest and we get up and we stand on what we know. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 to 17 says, but we ought to thank God always for you brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because from the beginning, God has chosen you for the salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. As we stand firm in the truth, we are encouraged to walk with the Lord in the midst of all the distractions and all the disturbances, and we then are able to do the king's business. We're able to do the king's business, but what exactly is the king's business? Simply for Daniel at the moment that we just read, he went to work. He went to work. He had been given a job to do in the kingdom and he got up and he did the job. Certainly we could understand if he wanted to stay in bed a little longer, sick, wallowing in the thoughts of the nations warring and this this horn and all these things about to do great damage, but he got up and he went to work. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, beginning in verse 6, says, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we didn't... We did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. There are, they are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. 
But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should eat. This is one of the truths that we know. We need to work. We were built to work, created to work. Part of our response to the Lord is that we go to work. If we have jobs, we show up and be excellent employees. If we are out of work for any reason, our job is to look for work, to be ready, to be willing. We were created to do good works for the glory of the Lord. Doing God's business, doing the king's business means we go to work. But it means more than that also. It is not just about a vocational job for money. Can somebody tell me what the second line of the Frisco Bible mission statement is? Do the Great Commission. All right. What does that mean? Share Jesus. Make disciples. There we go. That was the answer I was looking for. It is sharing Jesus. Make disciples. We're going to make disciples. We know that we're supposed to do that, right? Does anybody disagree with that? Nope. Okay. We know that. We might not know exactly what the little horn means, but we know we're supposed to share and make disciples. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We must be ready at all times to share why we have the hope that is in us. Doing the king's business involves us testifying of the greatness of God and what it means to trust Jesus as Savior. The prophecies in Daniel made him sick. They should at some level startle us as well as we seek to know and understand what they mean. But they should also lead us to a desire to help others to know peace because the world is not a peaceful place. And we know that only Jesus can bring that peace. So how are you doing making disciples? You know that you're supposed to do that. How are you doing making disciples? I want you to reach down below your chair. There are cards, note cards. I want you to pick them up. They're kind of spread out, so you may have to pass them around. Grab a note card and a pen. Grab a pen. Ushers are in the back. They've got extra note cards. Some of them have a couple of pens. Grab a pen real fast. We're almost done. You don't have to write a ton, so just be ready to pass your pen to share with your neighbor. All right, first thing you're going to write on your your card, please don't make this difficult. It's really simple. The staff tried to make this difficult on me the other day. Write your name, first name. Just write your first name on top of the card. Write your first name. Everybody got that? Second thing, down a little farther towards the middle of the card, I want you to pick... One to three names of people that you are in the process of making disciples. You might be looking to share the gospel with them, but you haven't yet. You've just met them, and you're trying to figure out when that's going to be. Maybe you're walking with a person for the last five years, and you continue to help them grow in their faith. It doesn't matter what stage that is, but I want one to three names on that paper. Maybe you have 20 names, but I want one to three on that paper. Write those down. 
Just her first name, so you don't need the whole name. And now what I want you to do is hand that card to the person to your right. If you're at the end of the row, just trade. Here's my challenge to you. My challenge is that you pray for the person who's at the top of that list, that they have courage and wisdom and strength and energy to study and to know God so that they may be excellent disciplers. I also want you to pray for the people on that list below that so that they may be able to hear the truth that is spoken to them by this person on the top of the page, the card. If we are to live with one another as a redeemed community, helping shape one another, helping smooth each other out, then we must be praying for one another. And I challenge you to pray specifically by name to help us do better. And I'm going to say do that for the next month. That's my challenge. You and I have the opportunity to be beacons of hope. Daniel was a beacon of hope in the midst of not understanding all of the details of the future that were portrayed to him in this vision. He got up and he went to work. And because of his faith, we have been encouraged and now we get to do the same to others. Let's be beacons of hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the opportunity to worship today. I thank you for Daniel and his example. I thank you for passages uh, like this one that are difficult to understand, even difficult now to, even though there's a leaning in my heart that I, 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 that I want to go with, I still don't know. I thank you that you give me the opportunity to be okay with that, even though my flesh fights against that. But I pray that that wouldn't be paralyzing to me or to any of my brothers and sisters, that we would continue to study, that we would continue to read and figure out as much as we can figure out that by your spirit you allow us to see. But there are so many things that you have written in your word to t for us to do. May we do those things. May we get up and go to work and be about your business above anything else in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.